0: A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to a conference that was an attempt to bring about a stronger relationship between Jewish believers and Christians. And when I say Jewish believers, I'm not talking about Jewish believers in Jesus, but, but people who were Orthodox Jews. And in that roundtable conversation, I got to sit next to a rabbi from Israel. And the particular forum that we were a part of, to be quite honest with you, was boring. And so he and I kind of struck up a conversation because our conversation was far more interesting than what was going on up at the front. And he asked me what I did. I told him that I taught Hebrew and Hebrew Bible. And he became very interested. And so we struck up this great conversation. And he asked me, he said, and he called me young lady, and at my age, when someone calls you young lady, that's that's an extreme blessing. But that also puts an age on him. He was um, he was a rather um, elderly gentleman, and he said, "Have you ever thought or studied seriously the Book of Esther?" And to be honest with you, I have read the Book of Esther. Several times I actually had to write my own commentary on the book of Esther for one of my PhD courses years ago, but it was an assignment and it really wasn't a heartfelt study. And I said, no, I, I really haven't because the book of Esther is just not that interesting to me. I mean, I'd much rather study Jeremiah or Isaiah or even Leviticus. I even love the book of Leviticus. And he smiled and he said, you know what Esther's name means? And I said, well, Esther is her Gentile name. It's for Hudassa, which means Myrtle. And he said, well, that's correct, but you failed to do your homework, young lady. (laughs) And And he went on to tell me, he said, this is all I'm going to tell you. When you take the etymology of the name Esther and you break it down, it means hidden or concealed. And he said, how many times is the name of God mentioned or even referenced in the book of Esther? And I said, well, it's not, which is probably one of the reasons it's never really taken seriously at evangelical seminaries and it's not even mentioned in the New Testament. The book of Esther is is one of the few books from the Old Testament that's not even referenced in the New Testament. And he got this big old smile on his face, and he said, We rabbis believe that God has hidden himself in the book of Esther, and it is the wise man or woman that studies and finds him there. Well, that was like, stick him to a bulldog. (laughs) So what I want to share with you tonight and over the next few weeks is my feeble attempt, because to be honest with you, this book is so rich and so deep that when I open it with the empowering presence of God's Holy Spirit, I lose my breath over the divine presence that I find in this book. So don't just read the book of Esther for its entertainment value, for its value as a story. Read the book of Esther. Read it over the next three weeks with me and look for God in that book, because he's on every page and in every word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of presence. You're a God close up and not a God far off. Tonight, Lord God, we thank you. You sent your son, and he's tabernacled in our midst, and that he's God with us, and God for us, and God on our side, and that we are a people of your presence. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place tonight. And that's not a casual invitation, that's a desperate cry. Would you come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Would you come and open our eyes to see Jesus? Would you come and touch our heart to receive the word and to receive, Lord God, the work of your spirit in our lives? More than anything tonight, Jesus, we want your name to be exalted. And we want to have such an encounter with you that you transform and revolutionize our lives so that we can bring honor and glory to your name. For it is in your excellent name, Jesus. We pray. Amen. Amen. Let me start tonight by way of introduction. I've got, I have three pages of notes, and the first page is almost all introduction. And I won't do this to you except for tonight. But without this foundation, it's going to be difficult to understand the importance of what we're going to talk about. In the Old Testament, beginning from Genesis 1-1 and all the way through, one of the things that separated the people of God from everyone else was presence. The people of God were a people of presence. They were a people who were intimately equ- acquainted with God himself. No other nation could claim the presence of God except for the nation of Israel because they were the people of God and he was their God. This presence is so important that if you look in the book of Exodus, the 33rd chapter, you'll remember the story. I cannot stay still. You rem- <laughs> you knew it was going to happen. You'll remember the story Moses has gone up to the mountain of God to get the law of God. He comes back down, and the people are throwing a big old party. And it's not just any party. They've built for themselves a golden calf, and they're doing all sorts of despicable things that are completely contrary to the ways of God. And Moses, seeing these things, throws down the commandments and has to go back up, and God gives new commandments, and he comes back down. And God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 33, he says to them, I want you to lead them and I'll give you an angel and that angel will go before you and lead you and protect you and take care of you. And Moses, Moses is such an amazing man. I mean, he's talking to God. You, I mean, I don't know about you, I don't back talk my parents. <laughs> and you especially do not back talk God or, or, or bring up an argument with God. But Moses argues with God and he says, God, if you do not go with us, I'm not going. If you do not go with us, we're not going anywhere. I tell you, that stirs me up because I think the church has gone on without God. I think that we have made decisions. I think that we have developed programs. I think that we have come up with agendas and strategies that allows us to go in our own direction without the benefit of divine presence. And then we get frustrated because our programs are fruitless. Or the fruit that it's producing is not the fruit that's the quality that God would have it to be. I think that it's time for all of us to look at our lives individually and ask ourselves the question, am I moving forward in the presence of God or am I moving forward in my own good ideas? Are we satisfied with what God spoke to us 25 years ago? Or are we saying, Father, I need a fresh word from you. Father, I need you to start a fresh fire in my heart. I need revival right here, Lord. Because I tell you, before we see presence in the corporate body, before we see fire and revival in the corporate body, it has to start right here. Before we see revelation and transformation in the body at large, it has to start with us as individuals right here, right now, in this moment. God is desiring, wanting to stir up fire and fan into full flame the things of His Spirit in our lives. So the only thing that keeps Him from doing that would be us because we're content and satisfied to move on without the benefit of his presence, but Moses is saying, oh no, we're not. if you don't go, we're not going. If you don't go, this is as far as this thing is going to go, and we're just going to stay right here, and so God, in response to Moses's prayer, God says, you have found favor in my sight, and I will go with you. I will go with you, and he did. For 40 years, he was with that stiff-necked, smart-mouthed bunch of people, <laughs> but he was with them. And he protected them a pillar of fire by day. I'm sorry, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with them and they became known in the book of Exodus by the peoples around them. They were known as a people of presence because God was with them. Is the church in the 24th century known as those people with the presence of God or are we known as those people with a program and an agenda? I would. That we throw all of our agendas and all of our programs to the side and seek the face of God for His presence once again. Because I tell you, one moment with His presence will do more good than all the programs coming out of Nashville and coming out of anywhere else. Because God's program is His presence. And it was so important that Moses said, if you don't go with us, we will not go. We will not move from this place. In Psalm chapter 51, you know the story. David's had his little deal with Bathsheba, and he thought he got got away with it. And then the prophet came and confronted him and said, David, you're the man. And Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. Now, this man has done things worthy of death. There is no law. There is no sacrifice. There is nothing that David can do to get absolution from his sin. The only only thing that the law prescribes for someone that commits adultery and murder is death. And David knows that the law can't help him. But he pushes beyond law and enters into that place called grace that comes through a relationship with God. And David says, oh God. It's against you and you only that I have sinned. And he goes on and he makes some other declarations. And then in verse 11, he says, Do not remove your spirit. Do not take your presence from me. And do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Take any. I I can hear David say, Take the palace. Take the crown. Take the throne. Take whatever you want. Just do not take your presence. I wonder how we would pray that prayer. Oh God do what you need to do. Just don't let anybody find out. God, do what you do. Just don't let it affect my business. God, do what you need to do. Just, just don't, don't, don't take my position from me. Don't take my title. Don't take the place that I've, I've built for myself. Don't take my houses. Don't take my lands. Don't take my cars. Just whatever you need to do, God, just don't take my stuff. When God's looking for men and women that will say to him, God, take whatever you need to take. Just don't take your spirit from me. I can live without everything else, but I cannot live without your presence. Are we that desperate and that hungry for the presence of God? Are we so stricken at our own unfruitfulness at our own ineptness and inability to do anything without God, that we throw ourselves upon his altar and say, Father, do what you must. Just do not take your spirit. Do not remove your presence from me. Are we that serious and that desperate about the things of God? I hear people ask all the time, oh, there's all these prayers going up for revival, but I don't understand why we don't see revival. We don't see people getting saved. We don't see people coming into the church, and we're losing this generation, and we're losing that generation. You think we would get a clue and ask ourselves, are we people of His presence? Or are we people with a program? Are we people who are hungry and desperate for more of Him? Or are we people who are hungry and desperate for more stuff? Have we confused the two? I believe that the eyes of God are constantly going to and fro, looking for men and women whose hearts are right and pure before Him. Men and women who love Him and love His presence, who seek His face and not just His hand. People who seek to know Him and not just what He can give to them. David was a man that knew the importance, the vital necessity of divine presence. I think one of the saddest passages of all of scripture is in the book of Judges, the 16th chapter. Samson has broken every one of his Nazarite vows, except for the cutting of his hair. He's touched the vine and partaken of the vine. He's touched dead bodies because he's the one that created a bunch of them. He's broken all the elements of his Nazarite vow, except for the one that people can see, which is the cutting of his hair. And while he is asleep, Delilah, that wonderful lady, <laughs> cuts his hair and ties him up. And he wakes up and he says, Judges chapter 16, verse 20 says, and he thinks to himself, I will shake this off at, at other, as at other times. He's thinking, it's always worked for me in the past so it's going to work for me now. It's always worked for me in the past, and it hasn't required any moral behavior from me. It's worked for me in the past, and I haven't had to live according to any particular standard of conduct. It will work for me again. And here's the saddest words. The Spirit of God had left him, and he did not know it and he could no longer shake the chains, shake the cords, the ropes off of him as at other times, and he was led off by the Philistines as their captive. I wonder if we would know it, if God's Spirit really lifted from us. Are we so in tune, are we so desperate for the presence of God that if it were not here, we would know it? If it were not a part of our personal, daily, everyday lives, would we even recognize it? I know that there's an emotional level where you sense the presence of God. Then there's that faith level to whether I feel like he's there or not. He has said that his spirit dwells within me. Christ has taken up his his habitation within me. And so he is here by faith. There are times when circumstances and situations begin to fall apart in our lives and it feels like God is nowhere near. That is a dangerous moment for so many of us. And I know that any of us in this room that's breathed in and breathed out long enough, we have had moments, maybe even extended seasons in our life where we did not sense the presence of God. When we prayed, it was like our words went up and just dropped to the ground. That's the hiddenness of God that these people in the Old Testament feared. It's the hiddenness. Moses says, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. It's David saying, take whatever you want. Just don't take your spirit from me. And it's it's Samson saying that he he got up and thought he was going to shake himself off as at other times, but the Spirit of God had departed from him, and he didn't even know it. Without the presence of God, we can accomplish nothing. Jesus said it like this, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you're separated from me, you can do nothing on your own. If we are separated from him, whether it's an emotional, a spiritual, or even an intentional separation, we can accomplish nothing of the spirit if we are separated from him. In Deuteronomy, and if you look through the the Old Testament... Because the Old Testament's more prolific about the hiddenness of God. If you look through the Old Testament and you were to do a survey on the hiddenness of God, you would find that human sin is the most common reason for the hiding of God in the Bible. That when God's people choose to sin and they keep on sinning, then God begins to remove himself from them. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 18, it reads, and this is God speaking, And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done because they have turned to other gods. To turn to other gods is to intentionally and purposely turn away from God and you are removing yourself from his presence. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 20, it reads, and he, referring to God, said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their, what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Those individuals who are unfaithful to God, who go after other things and other gods and proven themselves faithless. In Micah chapter 3 verse 4, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time. Why? Because they have made their deeds evil. Do not think for a moment, and I'm speaking to believers... Do not think for a moment that you can intentionally continue continue in your sin and not suffer consequences. We have presented such a watered-down version of the gospel that we want to make people feel good about who they are and what they're doing to such an extreme that we have failed to call sin what it is and talk about the horrible, destructive consequences of doing those things which God forbids. And church, it's time, if we are serious about Jesus Christ, if we are serious about the day in which we live, if we are serious about our Christianity, it's time for us to clean up our act and to realize that God takes our sin so seriously that it cost him his own son. That's serious. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 54, verses 6 through 8. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Even in those moments when God hides himself from us, know this, he is still drawing you to himself. He is still desiring that you turn around and follow after him and seek him with your whole heart. Jeremiah 33, 5, I have hidden my face from the city because of their evil. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 2, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. I think that establishes, and there are many more passages in the Old Testament that repeat The same message. Sin will separate you from God. Sin will cause a removal of divine presence or a hiding of God's presence in your life. And that's something, folks, that we ought to desperately cry that He never do to us. We ought to be on our face asking Him to once again make us a a people of His presence. Well, another reason that God hides his presence, because that's not the only one, that's just the dominant one. God hides in order to test the hearts of his people. Remember the book of Job? Job, God said, he is more righteous than any man. And the enemy said, let me have at And God said, go for it. Just don't take his life. Job never knew why he went through the things that he went through. Except that on the other side of it, he had a more dynamic relationship with God than ever before because the contents of his heart had been exposed and God was able to purify him through the testing. So God tests, God hides to test the hearts of his people. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verse 31, it says, God left him to himself, referring to Hezekiah, in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. It's in those moments when we do not sense the presence of God that the true contents of our heart begin to bubble forth. This is like when, when you don't think anyone is looking, that's what really defines you. We may tell people what we wish we believed, but the way we live our lives is the real testimony of what we believe. You cannot confess with your mouth, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is the Lord of my life and I love Him with my my whole heart and then live like the devil. People will look at the way that you live your life and the way that you live your life will be the definition of what you believe to be true. If we say, I believe that Jesus is coming again and that He's coming soon, I believe that in any moment, at any hour, the Lord could return. It would change the way that we live our lives. If we really believed that, then our lives would reflect that we believe that this world is not our home, that we are just passing through. I had the pleasure of just a few weeks ago going to the Biltmore with Erling Cooper. The Biltmore was built by the Vanderbilts in the late 1800s. It's a palatial estate. It's huge, the architecture is breathtaking, and the detail of even just the outside of the house, much less the inside, is overwhelming. And it's a wonderful overwhelming, but it's still overwhelming. So Earlene and I drive around in front of the Biltmore, and Earlene looks at it. It had been about 30 some odd years since she had seen the Biltmore, and she kind of gasps a little bit, and she says, I had forgotten how grand this place is. And I thought, well, I'll just stop and we can take in the intensity of the moment and enjoy it. And she gets this big old smile on her face. And I look at her and I'm kind of like, why are you smiling, Earlene? And she says, oh, this place is nice, but it just doesn't compare to what's waiting for me in glory. (laughs) That touched me because it reminded me this world is not our home and no matter what people can build great artists and architects it will not compare it took them over 50 years to build the Biltmore but our heavenly father's been working on our eternal home for thousands of years and he is a much grander architect than anything we could ever see in this lifetime church, if we really believed he was coming back, we'd be looking up instead of looking around at all the stuff. We would be investing ourselves in that world which is yet to come instead of this world that's going to pass away. God removes himself or hides himself from us from time to time to see what's really in our hearts. And I tell you, since I've been in South Carolina, I feel like he's been a little hidden at times. And I have to be honest, the things that he's exposed in my heart have not made me happy. But it has made me prayerful and it has made me repentant because God has exposed to me that I have been caught up in the things of this world and not wholly sold out to the kingdom that is yet to come. And we all need to get our focus off the things that are going to pass away and begin to invest ourselves in every way imaginable in that which is eternal. You have hidden yourself that you have hidden yourself from me, that you might see what is within my heart. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, God speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, take up your son, your only son Isaac, and go this journey up to Moriah, and when you get there, I'll tell you what to do, but you're going to offer him to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham gets up early the next morning, and for three days, God is silent. I don't know about you, but if God's going to like hide himself from me, that would not be the time. <laughs> But Abraham, what's in his heart? It's in his heart to do what his father has asked him to do. It's in his heart to do what God has told him to do. And so he takes that journey toward Moriah and he does what God is asking to do and it's deposited into his account as righteousness. And God says, don't touch your son. I know now that you love me more than him. And he stopped and provided a ram for Abraham. God will from time to time Allow us to go through seasons where we do not sense his presence in order to see what is in our heart. Think of Joseph. Joseph has this great dream about all that God's going to do for him. His mom, his dad, and his brothers are all going to bow down to him, and God's going to make him great. And he just knows he's going to do it in the next 24 hours. (laughs) And the next thing we hear from Joseph, his brothers have put him in a pit they've sold him to a bunch of Midianites and now he's about to be sold off to Potiphar's house and then when he gets to Potiphar's house, surely God will show me favor and and the hand of God will be on me. The hand of God was on him but Potiphar's wife accused him of something that he didn't do and he ended up in prison. I wonder how long he stayed in prison, we really don't know. But he did say to the baker, when you get back to your position, or the cupbearer, when you get back to your position, remember me. And what happens? Cupbearer never mentions his name. I think I would feel a little forgotten. But in due time, when God had worked out of him the things that need to be worked out and worked into him the things that needed to be worked in, God brought him out and God set him up as second in command of all of Egypt. And what, what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good and restored Joseph. Then, of course, there's Moses. For 40 years, he is it in Egypt. He lives in the palace. He eats the finest food, has the best education. Everything's going great for him. And then all of a sudden, when he should be at the height of his career in Egypt, he gets kicked out to the backside of the desert. And then for 40 years, he's the shepherd for, uh, for, his, uh, for his father-in-law, Jethro. I wonder if during that 40 years, he felt like he'd been forgotten. I wonder if during that that time, he felt like his life was over and there was no real purpose for him. But during that moment, God was preparing him for the very thing he was destined to do. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says that God hid himself because he was testing you to know what is in your heart. God is interested. He already knows what's in our heart, so the test is not for God. He already knows the test is for us so that we can see it. If someone had told me what, what was in my heart two years ago, I would have been offended and not believed it. It took God showing it to me and letting me see it and taking me through some things so that the garbage that was there could be exposed to me alongside of the grace to repent and to receive as cleansing in my life for it. It is a fearful thing for God to reveal you to you. But I tell you, when he does it, there is grace and there is mercy there to cover you and to show you that his forgiveness is complete and total and that he can make you completely whole because that's just the kind of God he is. So in summary, we see that when God is hidden, he's still revealing himself because you can't acknowledge that, oh, God's hiding unless you know there's an absence I mean, how can someone say, I don't sense God. I don't feel his presence. It's as though he were hidden from me if there had not at one time been an intimate knowledge that God was there. So even in his hiddenness, he's still revealing himself. Isn't that just like God? He's hidden in plain sight. There's a story about a rabbi who on a Sabbath or Shabbat was reading scripture in his office, and his little children were out playing, next to the window by his office and his his daughter about five or six years old comes into his office weeping and he asked her you know precious one why are you weeping and she said my brothers were playing hide and go seek and they told me to go hide and I hid and I waited but they never sought me and the rabbi began to weep because the father spoke to him in that moment and said I hide but my children do not seek me I hide, but they do not seek me. They just keep going as though I were never there to start with. They just keep going as though my presence were not something precious to them. I tell you, church, if you don't hear me say anything else through this series, God is asking us to seek him. He is hidden on so many levels in our life, and in our culture. And it would do us well to look for him because if we do not look for him and find him, we may find ourselves in a position to where we are fighting against him. And we do not want to do that in this hour. So even when God is hiding, he is still revealing himself. The consequence, though, of when God lifts his presence or hides his presence from his people. In the book of Hosea, God has hidden from his people because they have hidden from him. Chapter five, verses two and six. He says, you have hidden from me. You have removed yourself from me. Therefore, I will now hide or remove myself from you. Then he goes on in chapter two, back in chapter two. And these are the consequences that when God is hiding from his people, these are some of the things that they experience. There's no wool, there's no flax, There's no oil, there's no wine, there's agricultural devastation, there's personal sickness and diseases, and there's infertility in everything from their wives to their cattle. And when those things take place, that is a wake-up call to the people of God. Wow, we need to be looking for God. We need to be seeking His face because He has hidden Himself from us. And also, any time, any place... Anywhere, when God hides himself from his people, it is always interpreted as human suffering. When God is not present... It generates, it should generate a level of suffering in the heart of those people who know him that would make us uncomfortable enough to move from where we are and to begin to seek him. We're also told in Psalm 119 that the law or the Torah of God, it is impossible to be close to the law, the word of God, and to not also be close to his presence. That people who are far from his law, people who are far from his word, are also people that are far from him. One of the most frightening things I deal with as as a seminary professor is the biblical illiteracy of my students. Biblical illiteracy. They've read the book, but they understand it not. This is such a grievous thing to my heart that I came up with an entire day seminar on how to study the Bible. To me, it's not just good enough that you read your Bible every year. That's great. Don't stop doing it. But what is it if you read it but do not understand how to apply it to your life? What is it to read it and to not study it and to understand what it's saying and how you should be enacting it in your life and embracing it for your life? I ask a young lady that graduated from a Christian school. I'm going to be speaking in chapel on Monday. And I asked her, I said, when you were at a Christian school, what do you wish that someone had said to you when you were in high school in a chapel that would have been a blessing to you, something that would have helped you as you went off to the university? And she said, I really, and she did not hesitate. She very quickly said, I wish that someone had told me how to take an ancient text from another culture and see how it's relevant for my life. I think that we have an entire generation of young people who do not know how to apply the word to their lives. We have an entire generation of grown-ups who don't know how to apply the word to their life, who do not love the word and study the word and memorize the word. So many of us, like myself, that grew up as Christians in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a strong movement of studying and memorizing the Word and knowing the Word. And it was all about the Word. Everything you heard, is it in the Word? And then I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, which was really big on, is it in the Word? And everything that, is it in the Word? And then for 27 years, I said, under a pastor, who was always, is it in the Word? Is it in the book? If God says it, embrace it. If God doesn't say it, question it, challenge it. Is it in the word? We ought to be living our lives like that because people who are close to the word are close to presence, but people who are far from his word are far from his presence. Psalm 139 goes so far as to say, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you hiding his word in your heart? Are you allowing his word to test the decisions and the thoughts that no one ever hears? Are you taking the ideas that race through your mind and testing them with the word? When you think about doing something that might be morally wrong, are you asking yourself, what does the book say about it? You know, I get all kinds of ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feelings. I wouldn't give you 50 cents for the whole lot of them. Because sometimes my ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feelings are, in, are based on the Word, and sometimes they're not. It's time for us to stop being a people of ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feelings and become a people of His Spirit and of His Word. Amen. To become a people who seek His face and not just His hand. Okay. <laughs> there is a direct connection to loving the Word of God and the presence of God. Human sin and the Word of God do not mix. Because when you get into the Word of God and begin to become a student of God's Word, your sin will be reflected back to you in the mirror of God's Word, and you will be convicted. I think sometimes people don't want to be students of His Word because they don't like the conviction. I honestly, before you tonight, I honestly fear the day when I can read his word without being uncomfortable. I fear the day when I can go off and do my own thing and then come back to the word and not be convicted. Church, conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is the loving person of God stirring you to not go in a direction that will be detrimental to you. The confession of divine absence is also a confession of faith. To be aware of divine hiddenness is to remember a presence and to yearn for its return. Regardless for the reason for divine hiddenness, when we experience it, it's one of the fundamental elements in the concept of human suffering. So now let's take that idea and let's bring it to the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, it was probably written, or the events of the book probably took place sometime in the late 5th century B.C., If you'll remember, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians at around 586 BC. Then the Persians conquered the Babylonians while while the Jews were still captive there. So you've got to give time for the captivity to take place and then for the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. The events from the book of Esther then are dated to be late 5th century BC. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel would all be contemporaries with the book of Esther. Esther may have even known who these people were. One of the things that causes questions about the book of Esther is that the name of God or any reference to deity is missing from the book of Esther. The book of Esther is not referenced anywhere in the New Testament. The central concept of Esther, Haster, would be her name if you took it literally, haster means concealed and of course haster panim means the hidden face in reference to the hidden face of god so in a rabbinic dictum the babylonian talmud 139b for those of you who like to look these things up it states from where does the torah bring the name esther but from the verse but i god will surely conceal my face my Haster aster panim on that day for all, uh, for all that they, did, for all the ill that they have done, for they turned to other gods. So her name is taken from Deuteronomy thirty-one eighteen. Therefore, the name of Esther is interpreted as an extension of the phrase "the concealed God." Now, the setup in chapter one of Esther. And if you would turn with me to Esther chapter one, you knew we would eventually get there. I always get lost when I look for Esther because it's not where I think it should be. Yeah, go to Psalms and turn it. Off. Thank you. Found it. This is the setup. Now, in the days of Asheris, the Asheris who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when a king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp, of his greatness for many days, 180 days... And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones." Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to his edict. For there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to Ahasuerus. His name, Ahasuerus, means I will be poor and silent. Now, we do not find him poor and silent until the, until the end of the book. In this first chapter, he's introduced as rich and loud. But you know, there are a lot of things that introduce themselves as rich and loud, when in fact, they are poor and should be silent. He reigned from India to Ethiopia. Look at a map. He reigned the known world and had conquered the known world. And he threw a party For all of his officials, all of his soldiers, and all of his servants. And he showed off his wealth for 180 days. If you want to see my wealth, it'll take about three minutes. (laughs) It took 180 days. This man had so much wealth and had established so many possessions that it took him 180 days of partying to be able to show off all his wealth to all of these dignitaries, these noblemen, these servants, and these soldiers. Already, we're setting ourselves up for a king that's very much full of himself. A political power that's narcissistic. A political power... That controls and rules everything around him with no moral thought. He is his own morality. So, 180 days to show off his wealth. They're not just drinking wine in little plastic glasses. They're drinking wine in gold goblets and each of these goblets are different by design. It's the idea, I don't know if any of you know who Mackenzie Childs is, but Mackenzie Childs is this very high-end designer and one Mackenzie Childs glass that you would drink tea from is about $120. It's beyond that. And they're all different and they're all special design for him. This man is wealthy beyond imagination and he is very much wanting to show off and present that wealth to the world. This man has no concept of a God who could take him down like that. He has no concept that what he's experiencing is temporary and there's going to come an eternal reckoning. I see Ahasuerus as a type of Western culture. You can see it there. It's all about the wealth, it's all about the gold, it's all about the marble, it's all about the curtains and the cords and the this and the that. Do you know that we are a part of a culture that worships houses? If you don't believe it, just watch the home and garden television or HGTV, just watch it sometimes. People are so consumed with it. That it drives them. There are men who are doing things that are not moral because they're trying to get enough money to please their wives so that their wives can have the kind of house that they want. That's ridiculous. On Facebook a few weeks ago, someone stuck up a picture of a 1960s or 1970s bathroom. Everything worked and asked for, tell me what you think about this bathroom. Yuck, ooh, icky. I wouldn't go there. And I'm like, it's clean and it works. I don't see the problem. Some of you did not grow up where I grew up. up. (laughs) Some of you have never been to Africa with me. (laughs) We have got to get past our love and obsession with materialism because we belong to a culture who has made a God out of materialism. We now measure people by how much they have. Oh, that person's successful because they have this much. That's not biblical. Biblical success has never been rooted in how much you have. Biblical success is simply this. Do you know him? Are you obedient to his word? If you are pleasing to him, then you're successful. If you've done what he's asked you to do, then you're successful. And it doesn't matter where you live. And it doesn't matter what you drive or even if you drive. That's success. You can own the finest mansion. You can live in the Biltmore, but if you don't have Jesus, you're the poorest person on the planet. And it's time for us to restructure the way that we think. We have been deceived. We have been lulled in to this ideology that stuff will make you happy, that stuff will satisfy you, and it never has, and it never will. So here's a Hashrist. He has everything wine and golden goblets, lavish amount of wine. For 180 days, he's been given out wine and he's never run out. Then he throws a party for his intimate circle. Seven days they've been feasting. And this is the first law that this man makes. This is his first edict that we encounter regarding Ahasuerus. He says, no one should be under compulsion And everyone should do what they want. Wouldn't you like a king that made a law like that? In the Bible, when it's God's law, it's Torah. It's his word. That's his law. There's another word for law, and it's doth. D-A-T-H would be the alliteration. It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. And 20 of those 21 times is right here in the book of Esther. Now, when you see a word repeated that much and it's not used anywhere else, it should go ding, 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 ding. This is important, and I want to know what it's about. The book of Esther is filled with the edicts of the king, his doth. The law of man will always be counterproductive to the law of God, but the law of God will always crush the law of man like a stone. Francis Schaeffer, who is one of my favorite philosophers, Francis Schaeffer says, and he said this in 19, the early 1980s, like 1982, I think. Francis Schaeffer said, any government that does not leave room for peaceful civil disobedience, now listen to that, peaceful civil disobedience, that government has made itself a god. When government creates so many laws that you can't recover and understand the last 20 laws, and then there's 25 more laws that are written to clarify and undo the last 20, and it's just one law after another, something has gone wrong in that culture or that civilization. The law of the Medes and Persians is known throughout antiquity that when the law of the Medes and Persians was passed, when a law or an edict, a doth, Was made, it could not be broken. Unless there was another law made that in some way countered or canceled the last law. I get my brain just spins trying to keep up with all of it. We make laws to keep laws and then we make laws to undo the laws that we've just made. That's too much. My brain can't take it. I'm not that smart. Or I'd prefer to spend my time doing other things than keeping up with it. But 20 times. In all of Scripture, out of the 21 times, this king gives forth an edict. Let's look at these. In chapter 1, verse 8, it's the first law or edict or decree that we encounter. is regarding drinking, no compulsion. Each man was to drink as much as he desired. And Vashti threw a similar party for the women. This is a law of indulgence. Any time a society begins to create laws that allows for sinful indulgence, listen to me. Anytime there are laws that are created for sinful indulgence, that law is counterproductive to the things of God. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, the king appeals to the law. Vashti has not done what he's asked her to do, and he calls for his councilman, and he says, is there a law that I can lean on that will help me know how to deal with Vashti? And there was no law. That was was the law, using the law for his convenience. When you use the law for self-serving purposes and to make your point and to get what you want, it is no law at all. Chapter 1, verse 19. There was no law to deal with Vashti, so he made one. A new law is written to deal with Vashti and to find a new queen. This is a permanent law to deal with a temporary offense. How many laws... Do we have circulating in our culture today that are permanent resolutions to temporary issues? In chapter 2, verse 8, as a result of of the new edict, getting rid of Vashti, a new edict is made so that young women will be chosen. It's a beauty contest. And the most beautiful women in Persia will be invited to stand before the the king and one will be named queen. In chapter 2, verse 12, the edict of preparation for the young women. The young women are to go through 12 months of preparation according to the law. In chapter 3, verse 8, the law of the Jews, it's noted by Haman that the law of the Jews is different from the laws of the Persians and that they do not keep the laws of Ahasuerus. Chapter 3, verse 8, I want to focus on this for just a moment. Church, the way that we live our lives ought to be counter that of culture. The laws that we keep ought to be the laws of God. Amen. And the laws that we keep ought to set us apart from everyone else. If people do not look at us and go, they just don't live their lives like me. They don't do the same things that I do. They don't engage in the same kind of conversations that I engage in. They do not present themselves. They do not declare themselves to be like I do. Church, we have got to come out and be separate and holy unto the Lord. This is, these are serious days that we're in. And if the world doesn't see a difference between us and them, it's not their fault. It's on us. Because we ought to be living differently. Our presence ought to be an offense to the world. Our presence ought to make them uncomfortable. Our presence ought to speak to them of a different lifestyle and of a different king and a different kingdom. I'm not saying violate laws unless that law violates the word of God. And then that law is to be violated. Oh, everyone just got really quiet on me. (laughs) That's too revolutionary. In chapter 3, verse 12, 14 and 15, this edict is based on the word of Haman, and it's an edict that's going to go forth, and there's going to be mass genocide of the Jews because Haman has said, because the Jews do not keep the edicts of Ah of Ahasuerus, they live by different edicts, it's caused a question and suspect to arise upon the Jews, and now, for the first time, they are separated out from all the other peoples in Persia. And there's going to be a mass genocide according to the edict of the king. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 8. The edict of the king brings great stress and mourning to the Jews. Now that their life is being threatened, they're in sackcloth and ashes and they're mourning. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 16. It's the standing edict to keep the queen away from the king's presence. There's an edict that if the queen comes into the king's presence and he doesn't lower his scepter, then she is to die. So anyone who goes into this king's presence, it could be their life. In chapter 8, verses 13, 14, and 17, it's the law that overrides, or the edict that overrides the previous law, saving the Jews and then bringing vengeance upon Haman and his family. And then in chapter 9, verses 1, 13, and 14, the new edict brings justice for the Jews, and it brings correction and punishment for Haman and his family. The point with all of these edicts or all of these doths is simply this. Church, we're in a war. And the war is not some of the things we've been fighting. Because I tell you, it's a lot easier to fight against political personalities than it is to engage your own flesh. It's a lot easier to point fingers to the east at our state at our nation's capital, or point a finger to the west at Hollywood and the media industry, it's time for us to point the finger here because I tell you, neither of those institutions would have the power that they have if the church would rise up once again in holiness and the power of God's Spirit. The answer is not another rally, and it's not another picket, and it's not another boycott. The answer is for us to begin to seek the Lord until we once again become a people of his presence. The law of God is spelled out for us in Psalm chapter 19. As I was sitting on Janie Bartlow's couch this afternoon, and I was reading through and just meditating and mulling Psalm 19, I thought, you know, I could turn this around. And if I turned this around, it would be the doth the law of man, and this is how it came out. The law of man is flawed, draining life from those who try to keep it. The law of man is unstable, promising what it will never be able to provide, and appealing to the unlearned and simple-minded. The law of man is twisted and self-gratifying, breaking the hearts of the righteous and numbing the soul toward God. The law of man is defiled and it deceives those who live by it. The law of man is manipulative and will pass away with the culture that wrote it. The law of man is false and altogether carnal, satisfying the flesh of the ungodly. More to be avoided is the law of man than any life-threatening plague. They are more vile and disgusting than vomit, and by them your servant is ensnared. By keeping the law of man, your servant is deceived, and there will always be bitter consequences. Psalm chapter 19, and I close with this, because God in the book of Esther is hidden in his word. He's hidden in his law. And church, if God is hidden in his law, would it not behoove us to know his law and to let it be written upon the fleshly tablets of our heart, to remember it, to declare it when we get up in the morning, to speak it to ourselves throughout the day, and to think about it when we face various circumstances and situations in life, and to once again speak it as we go off to sleep at night, only to get up the next morning, and to once again declare the law of the Lord. I start at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, tonight we stand before you. And Father, we repent because you have hidden yourself from us and we have not sought you. We invite you once again to do such a work in our lives that we become a people of your presence That we once again become a people who know you and seek your face. You're a great God. We ask you to do these things for us. For the honor and glory of the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys.